Towards God judges with perfection. All his ways are just. Daniel 4.37. The title of my message this morning is God Shows No Partiality. It comes straight from Romans chapter 2. If you open your Bibles, Romans chapter 2, I invite you there. If you don't have one, you didn't bring one on your pew Bibles, pew number, page number 940. It's right there for you. Romans chapter 2. We've been going through the um, the book of Romans, the epistle of Paul to the Romans, and we're just going about paragraph per time, and we've come upon this paragraph here that speaks about God's just ways in all he does, showing no partiality. We read Romans 2, beginning in verse 6. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. You can see right there where I get the title of my message right there at the end of verse 11. God shows no partiality. And the reason why God shows no partiality is that he deals with the Jews in the same way that he deals with the Gentiles. Or as Paul, the translating the ESV, is the Greeks. He renders to all the same. He will render, verse 6 says, according to his works. Now, listen, to understand Paul's words, it really is helpful to help the, catch up on the context. Since chapter 1, verse 18, Paul has been seeking to demonstrate that the whole world is under the condemnation of sin. This is our logo here, eager to preach the gospel, which is what, what Romans is about. Now, I'm not sure if you notice these words here, the small letters, the sin, salvation, sanctification, security, sovereignty, and service, that we are right here in the sin section where Paul is trying to demonstrate how we are all under sin. We need to hear the bad news before we hear the good news of salvation, which begins in chapter 3, verse 21. But now we're in this section about sin and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But particularly chapter 1, verse 18 and following, we're talking about the Gentiles. We're talking about the godless nations, those who have, have no God in their, in their perspective who are immoral and walking in their own ways. And Paul's argument is that they are condemned in their sin. They are guilty in their sin because they did not honor the Lord or give thanks to Him, even though God has made Himself clearly known to them through the creation of the world. He's made known His invisible attributes and His divine power. Everyone on the planet knows God. And those who refuse to acknowledge Him and go their own way, as chapter 1, verse 20 says, are without excuse. At the beginning of of chapter 2, Paul then turns his attention to those who would have a a sense of morality or a sense of of right and wrong, unlike those of chapter 1 who who walk in unconstrained wickedness. Most likely, Paul has in mind here the Jews who know the Scriptures and the righteous requirements of the law, and therefore they know it well enough to judge others. And Paul then says that, well, you, chapter 2, Uh, 2 verse 1, you, when you judge others for doing wrong and you practice the very same thing, you condemn yourself because you know what it is that they are supposed to be doing. You know what you're supposed to be doing. You don't do that. And the result is chapter 2 verse 1 is that you are without excuse. 
And as God's patience and not punishing right away, chapter 2, verse 4, the kindness and patience and forbearance of God ought to lead people to repentance. And as God's kindness is spurned, eventually they are storing up for themselves, as chapter 2, verse 5 says, wrath, that is God's anger when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, beginning of verse 6, God is going to tell us how the righteous judgment actually will work. We will all be judged by our works, every single one of us. In fact, that's what Paul does. He emphasizes this fact. If you just look at the text, I put it up there. And three times in this text, he talks about each one or every individual or every human or everyone that's going to be judged by our works. It's not going to skip any of us. It's not going to skip me. It's not going to skip you. Every single one, every single individual. And that's the idea, right? That God shows no partiality. Now, the reason why Paul writes this way is because the Jews sought themselves to be a privileged people. They were of the chosen nation. They were Israel, descendant from Abraham. They wore the name Jew proudly because they thought that this name would hold them privileges before the Lord despite how they lived. And they thought the final judgment would escape them because they were on the end with God. Being his chosen people. And, and um, that attitude is brought out in chapter 2, verse 17. Look at there. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed in the law. And if you're sure that you have, yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in the law the embodiment and knowledge of the truth, just saying you see the pride there, that they have the law, they know the truth, they teach it, they're all there. And yet, in their wickedness, they dishonor everything, right? They, you preach against stealing, do you steal? You teach others, you teach yourself. You say, you know, don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you abhor idols? Well, do you rob temples? You boast in the law, you dishonor the law by breaking it. And basically, what Paul is doing is the same argument here in our text. He's just, he's just taking away the, uh, the facade. Yes, you say you're a Jew. Yes, you, you say you're there. But how are you acting? Because it's not on privilege that God will judge. God will hold the self-righteous, hypocritical Jew to account. God will judge them, not on the basis of their privilege, but as we see in verse 6, on the basis of their deeds, basis of what they will do. As Paul says, he will render to each one According to his works. You say, well, what privilege does a Jew have? Well, they do have a privilege. They have the privilege of going first into judgment. To him was much is given, much is required, and they will go first to judgment. That's what verse 9 and 10 are about. It's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Whether that's honor and glory or whether that is tribulation, distress, and hardship. Listen, just by way of application, this text just easily flows into a professing Christian. These were the Jews were. These were God's people at the time. These were, were professing Jewish people. Um, the, the one who thinks himself to hold a position of privilege because he's counted among God's people. Right? Or one might say, well, I go to church. I've, I've prayed the sinner's prayer. I've been baptized. I sing all the songs. I'm a member of the church. Uh, I'm, I'm here every Sunday. I, I give to the church. I, I come to prayer meeting. I'm I'm involved in a small group. I read my Bible. I stay away from the big sins like, like drugs and drunkenness and immorality. Surely God will look upon me with favor because I am one of the privileged, one of those part of the church. I'm one of those of the household of God. And 
to such a one, Paul says, verse 6, that God will render to each one according to your works. The only privilege a Christian receives is judgment first. First Peter chapter 4, verse 17, it's time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. It begins with the church. It begins with believers. Let's look at my first point this morning. I'm simply calling it the judgment. That God will render to each one according to his works. Okay, so, so maybe you're catching this, right? If you're, you're here this morning and you know uh, what we believe about the gospel and about the grace of God, um, and you know and love the gospel, these words are going to sound very strange to you. You're going to feel like something is very wrong. You feel, any of you guys feel this? Maybe not. Maybe so. But the fact to hear that he will render to each one according to his works. I mean, don't, don't we know that we're justified by, by grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus? Don't we know that salvation doesn't come to the one who works, but to him who believes? Don't, don't we know that salvation is a free gift of God? It's not as a result of our works. And don't we know that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved? Irrespective works. Is that what we think? Listen, right when you hear this, that God will render to each one according to his works, you might say, Paul, that's not right. That's not right. We aren't saved by our works. We're, we're saved by grace. Do you see the tension? I trust you do. I've wrestled with it. I remember a couple months ago thinking about, oh, what am I going to do with chapter 2? Well, what am I going to do with these verses? Because they're, they're hard. But let me just remind you and comfort you in the fact that Paul knows the gospel. The very one who wrote these words knows the gospel very well. Let's just take a brief tour of Romans. Go into chapter 1 and look at verse 16. Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There it is, the, the power for salvation, that, that saving power, that sustaining power comes in the gospel. To the Jew first, because the gospel went to them, but also to the Greek, to us, Gentiles. Because for in it, the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We, we believe, we live by faith, not trusting our works, right? The salvation comes to those who believe, not to those who work. That's what Paul says, this is the gospel, Continue on, chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We all know we're sinners that will never stand before God on our works. We know our justification comes by grace and, and uh, not by our works. And Paul knows that, that Christ Jesus is the one who paid the redemption price for our sins. We don't pay for it ourselves. It's not on the basis of works. Or chapter 4. Look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We know that the one who doesn't work, but believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, that's the one who is justified. We don't work for our righteousness. We gain our righteousness through faith. That's the gospel. Paul continues on, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows that our justification comes by faith alone and not by works. 
Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? When we work, we're going to die. But the free gift of God is, is eternal life. Not by any deed that we might have done. Should I continue? I can. Romans chapter 9, 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, it's not our human will. It's not our exertion. It's on God and his mercy that we are saved. And Paul knows that our salvation is dependent upon the mercy of God and not our efforts. As I quoted earlier, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul knows that our salvation comes from a a confession of faith, not through living out the law. He knows that our, our salvation comes through believing in Jesus, not through working to obtain out our salvation. So, all right, here's the million dollar question. Who wants to be a millionaire? All right, here it is. All right, you want to, Becca. Exactly. All right. Why does Paul say that God will render to each one according to his works when he knows that we are saved by grace and not by works? Why does he say that? Well, there's some options. We say that, well, maybe Paul was wrong. Maybe we are saved by our works, that's what he says. Or maybe he was just mistaken. Like, like maybe when he wrote Romans 2, he forgot Romans 1 and Romans 3, and Romans 4, and Romans 5, and Romans... Yeah, maybe he maybe forgot. Um, maybe he was neo-Orthodox. Now, some of you don't know what that means, but for those of you who are in the know, you know what that means. It means you can hold two contradictory truths at the same time, and we're happy. That's what neo-Orthodox... Maybe he was, he was that. Or maybe, quite possibly, he was right. Now, of course, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, so we know that D is the correct answer. But more than that, we believe that Paul is coherent, that he would not contradict himself in the same document. So what does he mean in verse 6? That he will render, God will render, chapter 2, verse 6, God will render to each one according to his works. Well, let's just work through this. I want to make some observations first, and then let Paul speak for himself. And I think things will be clear by the time I'm done. Okay, so let's remember the context. The context is that we are all under sin. I mean, Paul is aiming towards chapter 3, verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. He's aiming for this this place that all of us realize our sin, that we are sinful before God. And we are hopeless and helpless. In other words, the context here, chapter 2, is judgment and not salvation. Paul is saying that we will be judged by our works. He doesn't say that we will be saved by our works. Verse 6 isn't talking about salvation. It's talking about judgment. It's talking about condemnation. Next observation. Works are important. One of the things you you, you can't do is is read verse 6 and say works don't matter in our lives. Because they do. And if you take verse 6, as I believe we should do, Take it this morning, we understand that our eternal destination is dependent upon our works. Careful, we don't earn our eternal destination, but our works 
determine our eternal destination. In other words, let me just borrow from James. I think this is what Paul's talking about. James chapter 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has not works? Can that faith save him? And the answer, of course, is no. You can't be saved if you have no works. Why? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warned, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, right, if you profess a faith, but it's not evidenced in works, your faith is dead. You have no faith. But if you have a vibrant faith, works will follow. It's called fruit. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. It's not that not works don't save us, but works show the reality of our faith. If we have no works, our faith is dead. If we have works, we demonstrate that we do have our faith. And, and that concept, by the way, is not just James. It's Paul as well. Paul speaks this way in other places. Look over at Romans chapter 1, verse 5. His whole heart, his passion as a servant of Christ Jesus, when he's called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, he has a passion to, to spread the gospel. He's eager to preach the gospel and to bring about, chapter 1, verse 5, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. In other words, he, he so wants to go out, see people believe, and see then people walk in obedience to the Lord as a result of their faith. When we get to, in Romans, when we get those things, sin, salvation, then what comes next? Sanctification. Chapter 6 and 7, it's all about how we live. It's all about the the fruit of what God does in our life. And so it's appropriate here that we look at chapter 6, verse 20. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit... Were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? That is, before you come into Christ, you're enslaved, enslaved to your sin, no regard to righteousness. And what was the fruit of your life? Shame and death. But everything changed when you come to Christ. So verse 2 is talking about it. Titus 3.5 says we, that we are saved not on the base of deeds we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. See, there's something called regeneration. When you believe in Jesus, He changes you. And He makes you into something different. And that something different will express itself. That's what He's talking about in chapter 6, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin, right? you've believed in Christ, the regeneration's happened, you're free from sin, now you're slaves to God. And the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So you believe, you've been freed from sin, now you're slaves of God, and that leads to sanctification, which leads to eternal life. Now again, it's not the sanctification that merits eternal life. The sanctification gives testimony that life has been imparted. That's the only way that you can understand both these things. You can fall into the Roman Catholic era and say, yes, it's faith and it's works. We're not saying that. Or you can fall into the, the strong evangelical, strong whatever, Christian that just says, oh, it's faith irrespective of works. Those balances are wrong, but the right proper biblical balance is faith that produces works. We're saved by faith that alone, but that faith never is alone. 
That sanctification here gives testimony of the faith that was imparted. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here, even using the fruit language in verse 22. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. And Paul, when he's talking here in in Romans chapter 2, is talking about our judgment will be judged by the fruit in our lives or or lack of it. And and our works will give testimony to our faith or lack of faith. So getting back to the original context of of Romans chapter 2, you have these Jews looking at their privilege as chosen people of God. And they thought they'd survive the judgment because they were God's people. They, They just were on the end. And God says, not so fast. Privilege won't help you in the final judgment. God won't look to your privilege on the final day. He'll look to your practice to see whether you demonstrated your faith in your works. See, when it comes to God, it's not profession of faith that matters. It's possession of faith that matters. See, because people can say all they want, but it's whether they really do believe and trust. And when you do really believe and trust, it will produce fruit in your life. It's not association with the church that matters. Right? It's experience, a genuine experience with faith that matters that flesh itself out in the life. And, and, and again, I just fear many professing Christians in the church today are going to have a wake-up call on the day of judgment because they think that just their external involvement in the church is sufficient for their salvation, not realizing it's all about faith, not, not realizing that when you really believe in Jesus and trust Him and Him alone, it's going to change you, it's going to transform you, it's going to give you a, a, a life's new direction, which is exactly where Paul goes in verse 7. So let's look to those who do good. Verse 7, to those who by patience in well-doing Seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now, I trust that you can see here that that verses 7 and 10 are saying the same things. And verse 8 and 9 are saying the same things. Verses 7 and 10 are talking about those who are going to pass the test on that judgment day. Verse 7 says He will give eternal life to them. Verse 10 says He will be given glory and honor and peace will be upon them. Verse 8 and 9 are parallel as well. They, they, they talk about those who fail in the judgment. There will be wrath and fury, verse 8. They will experience tribulation and distress in verse 9. That's why I've focused upon to those who do good, verses 7 and 10. If you have problems with those who do good, in verse 10, that's exactly what he says, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, even though, right, you look over at chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together become worthless, no one does good, not even one. How do you reconcile those things? Well, here's the one who's doing the right things, but ultimately none of us are righteous perfectly before the Lord. But again, it's what Paul is is talking about. I just want to use Pauline language to those who do good. Let's think here about verse 7 and 10. Read 7 again, and I want you to think carefully what he's talking about here. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Paul here describing the one who is seeking the Lord. 
He's seeking things beyond this life. He's seeking glorious things. He's seeking honorable things. He's seeking incorruptible things. And did you know that's practically the definition of a Christian? A Christian sets his things above. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And that is a picture of a Christian. A Christian is one who sets his mind extra worldly. We are not of this world. We are citizens of heaven. And that's where our minds are set as believers in Christ. And one who, who passes this test, who, who does good, is seeking... Verse 7, patience in well-doing. He seeks for glory and honor and immortality. I believe he's seeking the glory there, the glory of God. Seeking for for God's glory. But he's also seeking in some regards for his his own glory, to share of the glory of God. Do you have a problem with that statement? Turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God... All things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that we might be firstborn among the brothers. Right. So those that God foreknew, these are the ones He predestined. And these He predestined, verse 30, He called. And these He called, He justified. And these He justified, He what? He glorified. So in other words, right, that He foreknowing and predestinating in the past calling and justifying in the presence and the future glory is in the future. We will be. When we have a resurrected body, we will have a glory that, that sheds this mortal, dying, sinful body. And we will have a, a glory that's what we seek. And in fact, if you doubt that, look at verse 10. Glory and honor and peace will be for everyone who does good. We will get glory. Glory will become us if we seek glory. We seek the glory of God and us partaking somehow of that. Seeking honor is the same deal. Is it seeking the honor of the Lord? We want to lift God high. And we want to be those who Christ says to us, well done, well done, good and faithful one. Matthew 25. And if we seek that honor, honoring the Lord, so also, verse 10, will that honor come back to ourselves. Also says that he seeks immortality. That is, he seeks something beyond this mortal life. He, he seeks to live forever. This is, this is life eternal. In fact, that's what he gets. As he's seeking immortality, he's going to get eternal life, everlasting life. And one of the things that this verse does is it removes philanthropy from the definition of what it means here to be good. Because it, it's not just merely being good to, to be good so as to build myself up. It's not charitable giving so I can make a, a tax deduction, as good as that is. It's not giving so I can get something in return. No, this is seeking immortality. This is seeking something beyond. I, I understand and I know that there's this other world beyond this world in which we can see and feel and touch and taste. And that's what I'm seeking for. And that one will be re- received everlasting life. He'll receive glory, verse 10 says. He'll receive honor. He'll receive peace. Peace essentially is the definition of a Christian. All right, peace with God, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is in God's presence at peace and harmony with Him. And it's not just that, but it is patiently seeking in well-doing. Verse 7, 
to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. This is just the, the endurance of life. Those who endure until the end to be saved. Those who continue to press on will be saved. It says in Galatians 6 that what a man sows he will also reap. And Paul says, therefore, don't be tired in well-doing, but keep pressing on in your well-doing. And so Paul isn't here saying that, that those who are, um, whatever, earning or meriting this in any way. It's just that this is the mindset of a Christian. We're all judged by our works, but those who, by their works, are demonstrating how they're seeking and what they're seeking will receive the eternal life. So Paul's point here. It's about a life lived. And so likewise, we see here in verses 8 and 9, to those who do evil, what comes upon them. Verse 8, this is just exactly the opposite. I mean, there's so many parallels here in terms of just the the opposite. There are three things listed in what they're seeking. There are three things here in which they do. Uh, Rather than getting eternal life, they're going to get destruction. Let's just read it. It says this, verse 8. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You look here, verse 8, what, what demonstrates one who is not saved, one who will face eternal destruction, as Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 says. It says he's, he's self-seeking, that he's just pursuing things about himself. What he does, he's all about himself. He's not looking to give. He's not looking to be external. It's all an internal motivation. It's all about him. He causes problems because it's all about him. If someone does good to me, well, that's good. But if someone does bad to me, they're bad for him. Okay? Donald Trump is self-seeking, guys. That's what it's about. He's disobedient. Dis- disobedient means that, that you just disobey what God says. You don't walk in the ways of God. And again, this is your works. You say, okay, well, well, what are you doing? Let's, let's list out your life. What are you doing? You're, you're disobedient. God has told you. God's made himself known. Are you walking that way? And this is where it attacks the presumptuous Jew who thinks he's in because of his name or the professing Christian who says, I prayed a prayer long ago, but is not walking with the Lord. Right here, they're disobedient. Or they are obeying unrighteousness. They're not obeying the truth, but they're obeying unrighteousness. They're walking in the ways at the end of Romans chapter 1. And we went through that list before, right? They're, verse 29. And this is, although this is talking about Gentiles, it can be very true of professing Christians. Filled with all unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, hate of God. That could be true of Christians too. That could be true of professing Christians. And listen. If that's the fruit of your life as a professing Christian, let verse 6 ring hard on you. Each one will be judged according to his works. And pray. As a prayer meeting this morning, right? The verse that some of us will be meditating on, those who are attending the prayer meeting on John 15, verse 5, abide in me and I will abide in you. I haven't got it totally memorized yet, but it's apart from me, you can do nothing so realize, it's not that you're going to say, hey, I'm going to do all these works, I'm going to get right. No, it's God. I so want to be right with you, and I, I just want to abide with you. I want to be with you. I want to believe in you. I want to trust in you and spend time in his word, spend time in prayer, and watch God transform your life to see these sorts of things, to see the unrighteousness go away, and to see obedience come. 
That's what it means to, to be a Christian. But the one who, who is disobedient and unrighteousness, look, look what they're going to get. They, they can expect wrath. That is God's anger. And God's wrath and anger is far worse than anybody else's wrath and anger you have ever seen or experienced. Fury, practical synonyms with wrath and fury. You don't want God to be angry with you, especially when he's offered the way of peace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the fruit of that is distress and tribulation. Verse 9, there'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. This tribulation just speaks about just being pressed, hardship, distress. There's there's stress there. There's anxiety. There's difficulty. There's hardship. There's just not going to go well. And it's interesting here that the contrast is eternal life or distress and hardship. Maybe it's describing this life or maybe it's describing the life to come. Just a life to come of eternal difficulty and hardship and being pinched and being crushed. You don't want to go there. You want to have your works demonstrate to the world that you are a believer in Jesus You want your works to see and manifest to God that you indeed believe in Him. He will render to everyone according to His works. And finally, we just have the affirmation here. And and this really is good news to those of us who believe in Christ. There's no partiality with God. That that we believe in Christ. God has worked to work in us. He's working in us and we're visible. We see it. We love God. We serve Him and we will be with Him. uh, God's going to graciously... Show mercy to us. But to those who are not following that way, there is an ultimate judgment. I mean, the, the Bible couldn't be clearer on this. Psalm 7, 8, the Lord judges the peoples. God is the righteous judge. Psalm 96, verse 13, He will judge the world in righteousness. Psalm 98, verse 9, He will judge the world with righteousness. <clears throat> That's true of the Old Testament even more true the new testament I, I challenge you look for verses that talk about the eternal judgment the day of judgment you'll find <clears throat> far more in the new testament that talk about that than you will in the old far more i mean listen to jesus with a judgment you pronounced you will be judged matthew 11 verse 24 speaking about those who rejected him i tell you it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of sodom than for you John 5, the Father judges no one but gives all judgment to the Son. Listen to Peter. He's commanded us to go. This is Jesus. Commanded us to preach to the people and testify that He's the one appointed to be judge of the living and the dead. Acts 17, verse 31. He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through Jesus Christ. So the natural question really comes. What's the issue with the judgment? How will God judge the world? How will He judge people? He will judge them according to his works, verse 6 says. Psalm 62, 11 and 12. Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Now again, let, let, let the tension remain, right? But let, let's not today, like, so skip over this and so go to the gospel that we say, oh, yes, we just believe in Jesus, and yes, wonderful we are, and... and as true as that is, that's wonderful, and we, we rejoice in that. But let's let verse 6 have its weight today. 
that God will render according to your work. So the question is, right, we, we love the gospel, we love Christ. Is it manifesting itself so on that day my works will be clear? Because I'm seeking glory and honor and immortality. I'm seeking God. I'm seeking Christ. I'm seeking the things above. I'm hating the things that tear me down and I want the ways of God. I'm crying out like Paul says in Romans chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will separate me from the body of this death? Get this rid of me because this is where I want to go. Are you a pilgrim on the journey like Pilgrim's Progress? Walking through the hardships and the trials. Acts 14 says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Are you walking on that way, seeking the celestial city? Are you seeking God? Are you pursuing Him? Are you pleading for His mercy and His grace? Or are you caught up in the ways of the world? And your life, your life looks no different than a guy in the neighborhood right out here who is... You know, pursuing after the ball games and pursuing after the kids in school and pursuing after this or that, and you look just the same. Or you're looking different. On that day, when God puts you against this guy, are you going to look different? You say, God, yes, I've trusted in you, and look at the things that you've produced in my life. Let's turn and finish in Matthew chapter 25. I just want to show you that this is what Jesus said when the final judgment happens. I just want us to, to take weight in this So I close my message this morning. Matthew 25, verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd, sh- shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed to my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And it isn't interesting here that the righteous aren't even aware of many of the things coming out of their lives. They're just, they're just living life and seeing poor and naked and needy and helpless people and just helping them. And it has to be when you, you combine that, even what Jesus said and what Paul said, it's got to be that that's just the fruit and expression of a, of a life that's committed to God. But it's, it's the very reason why they're coming in. This is judgment by works. They're in because their works are manifesting themselves. And then on the flip side, Jesus said, lest there be any disclarity here, let, let it just show it to you. Then he will say, verse 41, to those on his left, these are the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. They also will answer saying the same thing. Lord, notice they're calling him by name. They seek a familiarity. These are probably professing Christians who are, who are fine in their profession, but are self-absorbed, self-seeking, disobedient, 
following after their own ways. They're saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to your life? If you were here, Jesus, we'd minister to you. And then he will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Okay? And that's an indication of where the faith was. It's an indication that the fact that there is no fruit in the life. And this is judgment by works, just looking at what's going on there. And to these will go away into eternal punishment, but to the righteous into eternal life. And so I just ask you, where will you be? Where are you going to be? Are you going to be on Jesus' right or his left? Let's not dismiss, in light of our glorious love for the gospel, our love for God's grace and kindness to us and mercy to us in Jesus. Let's, let, let's not dismiss Romans chapter 2, verse 6, that he judges according to works. But let's realize that it all harmonizes and let's embrace it and let's pursue the Lord. Let's seek for glory and honor and immortality. Let's do that. And let's, let's see God produce his works in our life. In fact, if, what a great parallel. John 15, apart from me you can do nothing. And see, see, Jesus is the vine and as we're attached to that, Jesus is working in us to produce everything from us. And apart from Jesus we can do nothing, but in Jesus we can do everything. And so everything we do is in Jesus. And he'll give us the strength and the power and the conviction to help the, the poor and needy and, and helpless, homeless, prison. And just also, I'd be remiss if I didn't just talk about this as well, is that uh, Paul's writing Romans to be eager to preach the gospel. When you look at the people this week, your neighborhood, your workplace, whatever, are you going to look at them as people who are lost and going to hell and need the gospel? Because as they are disobedient, as they are pursuing unrighteousness, as they are self-absorbed and self-seeking, that's where they're going. And you have the news today. It's found in Christ Jesus. Say, so look at your works. What kind of life is your what kind of life are your works producing? And just see where people will see their sin. They know oh, I'm not perfect. <laughs> if you're not perfect, you need a savior. Christ is our savior. Let's let's be zealous and eager to preach the gospel in light of these things as well. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd just convict our hearts. Thank you for the exposition of, of Scripture through books of the Bible. I never would have preached this, God, <clears throat> choosing a text for myself. As it's difficult to understand, it's difficult to explain, it's hard, it seems contradictory to the gospel, and yet it is, it is true of how Paul puts it. I pray that we might never dismiss the place of works in our salvation. God, it's not meritorious before you in any way, God, but it's all produced by you. And so help us, God, to embrace these truths. I pray for us uh, this week as we, we think about these things, perhaps talking with them in our family worship, with our children, with our spouses, perhaps even going over the small group questions with our small group you've given us, there's our, our families. Father, really think about these things. God, help us to examine our own lives, search ourselves, Paul says in 2 Corinthians thirteen five. Test ourselves to see if these things are true. Oh, Father, may we pass the test. Father, may we be found as those who will hear from you. Well done, well done, good and faithful one. That's, that's what we long for, God. 
And I, I pray for the soul that's here that doesn't know Christ, maybe that, that comes to church uh, consistently, that sings the songs half-heartedly, that really is absorbed in self. I, I pray you convict that soul here this morning. I, I pray that you would illuminate their heart. You'd give them eyes to see that you would... Bring your spirit upon them to take that which is dead in their sins to make them alive in Christ Jesus. Uh, God, I, I pray you do that even today, God, just for eternity and for your eternal glory of your grace. God, I pray as we continue to go through Romans, we're going to hear the same message for the next couple of weeks. I pray you convict our hearts that we would grow more and more in love with you. Um, Father, we also do pray for the fellowship dinner we're going to have afterwards. God, we thank you for, for just the opportunity we have every month just to gather here with our friends. And uh, may it be like a family reunion. And uh, Father, may we, may we thank you for the food that you have given us. May we be thankful. Thank you for the testimony that Ryan and Tina gave as a precursor to Thanksgiving. Uh, Father, thankful for the way that you raised $30,000 for them, God, to satisfy everything they needed. Um, Father, so we, we thank you for that. We pray that, God, we might just sit with people we don't know, God, to get to know others, and God, we might encourage one another and build one another up on uh, this next hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.